Yes, brilliant. Sorry about the delay, I was quite enjoying myself back there. I completely lost where I was. Okay, let's just quickly pray. Heavenly Father, break down the walls of our thoughts so that what we hear is not my personal words, but the words that you want us to hear to actually ignite our hearts to where you want us to go and what you want us to be. Amen. Right, well, thank you very much indeed. It's the first time I've uh, ever been allowed to speak here at Camden, and probably the last. Um, but uh, I was quite surprised when Edward said, because I normally go to the services on a morning, and I was quite surprised when Edward said that the talk in the evening is three hours, but still, never mind, I, I'm, I'm here, okay. And uh, what I've chosen is a really, really safe thing to speak on for the first time, sort of with learner plates on, if you like. Uh, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you all know it, but I will remind you of it. It's Luke 10, 25 to 37, for those of you who want to follow it in your Bibles or on your iPads or whatever else it is. So Luke 10, 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus, the reply Jesus said was, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the Rome, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, you will forgive me, um, as a man, I am not good at multitasking, so therefore, there might be times when I click on the wrong slide. So, what we've got here is we have got the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a classic story. Uh, major problem, no one cares, someone cares, sorted. Uh, but what sort of story is it? Well, I guess if you were going to make a film out of it, uh, the Samaritan would probably be played by Daniel Craig, 007, who would perform open-heart surgery at the roadside with only a penknife and a dry martini. 
he'd carry the wounded man on the bonnet of his Aston Martin to the inn where there'd be no innkeeper but a defenseless Penelope. You can tell how old I am by these actors, can't you? I've got no idea who the modern ones are. Penelope Cruz. Uh, yeah, sorry, guys. For the rest of you, just go into your own fantasies with whichever actors and actresses that you want. Suffering from years of persecution by a local gang of desperados. Daniel Craig would then single-handedly pursue the baddies and in the pre-final scene defeat them with the whole of their hideout exploding. But it's not like that. At first sight, this is an illustration of Love Thy Neighbor, but actually, it's an awful lot more. Let's look at the background to Luke, because that's where it comes from. It's the second longest gospel and the third in the series after Mark and Matthew. It's generally combined with Acts, because both were written by Luke. And what Luke provided in his gospel and in Acts is a salvation history. This is his understanding of God's purpose discovered in the way by looking at what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Now, Luke knew his scripture really well, and he wrote the gospel from a very theological aspect. He looked at the divine necessity of Jesus' mission. Now, Luke draws the gospel... And he brings it in from various sources. I don't know why I keep turning around there. I've just realized it's up there as well. Okay. <laughs> you can tell it's the first time, can't you? Now, looking at it, we've got 42% from Mark. Now, in fact, of that 42%, 1% appears in Mark and nowhere else. But the other 41% also appears in Matthew. Then we've got 23% that appears in Luke and also in Matthew. And that is said to come from a source known as the Q source, which they both had access to, which were sayings. And then you have got 35%, which is just pure Luke. Now, Luke, in his history, divides up his gospel and acts into giving a history of the first century. Well, not all of it, because it doesn't necessarily uh, get written before the, or finished before the end. But basically... He starts off in Luke 1 to 5 with the birth of Jesus and runs it through to the commencement of his mission. Then the rest of the Gospel of Luke is his earthly mission, his death, and his resurrection. And then in Acts, he continues on with the story post death. Now, it's probably written between about 80 and 180 AD, but we know that it was still being revised in the second century. The oldest full version, though, that we've got of Luke, because all we've got from the second century is actually just one little scrap. The oldest full version of Luke we've got comes from the fourth century. And although we believe both documents are written by Luke, well, Paul actually says that Luke is with him, and therefore it all fits in, Luke actually is not specifically mentioned in either his Gospels or in Acts itself. Now, Luke is believed to be a Gentile. He's also believed to have been a physician, the interesting thing is that if you look at any medical knowledge in either Luke or in Acts, it's kind of what we call general knowledge. In other words, it's stick a plaster on it time as opposed to anything in more depth. But his writings are directed at recently qualified Christians or converted Christians. And he seeks to validate their church by giving the history of the founder. Luke, obviously, if he was a physician, was fairly affluent and we know from his writings that he was well-educated. But if you look at his writings, he spends a lot of time actually gingering along the artisans and the small businessmen. And the reason for that is he's following Paul around, and those are pretty much the people that Paul is converting. So although 
in most cases, the academic side of people would actually go nowhere near the artisans. They would look down on them. Luke actually does write for them. He writes about a, a nation that is divided. They, just imagine it. You are in your country. The Romans have occupied it. It's a brutal occupation. It has divided the people of your country. Some just want to live quietly, so they're doing what the Romans want. Others are uh, being a little bit less helpful. And then, right into the middle of this, explodes Jesus. And this just sets up this, well, sort of powder keg, if you like, of stuff to happen. Now, Luke is especially strong in emphasizing Jesus' disputes with the religious leaders. And their inability, which annoys him immensely when you read his gospel, it absolutely does annoy him, that they can't see who Jesus is. Is. They just can't see it for everything that's going on, and that really frustrates him. Okay, so that's Luke. Let's not spend too much time on that, because what we're looking at is the story about the Samaritan. So let's just look at the bit that we've given. Well, the first part, which is the first three verses, is also in Mark and Matthew. Uh, and the parable of the Good Samaritan only appears in Luke. That's a pure, pure Luke. You won't find it elsewhere. Now, as a history... Jesus has told his disciples he's going to die, and they're journeying south to Jerusalem from Bethsaida, which is a town that had been recently built by Herod on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. He's already sent out 70 followers in advance to prepare the way, and in fact, they reach one Samaritan village on the way, and the Samaritans refuse him access to the village. And in fact, the disciples want him, well, in fact, the disciples say, you know, shall we bring a thunderbolt down on the village? And he says, no, 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 let's just pass on. So you can see there's a bit of a bubble on the go. The disciples, who, of course, will be Jewish, do not like the Samaritans. In fact, none of the Jews like the Samaritans at all. The Samaritans, well, the Samaritans came from the northern kingdom. I don't know if you remember, but there were two kingdoms. Uh, there's basically the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom eventually broke up, I think it was about 721, or maybe quarter to eight, I'm not quite certain. Um, and it broke up completely, it got overrun. The southern kingdom managed to hang on, which was called Judah, managed to hang on, and that's where the core of the Jews were. And so therefore, the southern uh, Jews do not like the Samaritans, but we do see the Samaritans appear within the Gospels again and again. And this is one really big point about it. Okay, so... We then get to a village. Now, it doesn't say where the village is, but we know probably it is a Jewish village, so he's got much further south. And there he meets a lawyer. Now, we're not talking here about a lawyer in the sense of, can you get me my house transferred or whatever. We're talking about someone who teaches the law. And the lawyer approaches him, and he's obviously in a process of trying to catch him out because he asks a question to which any learner lawyer would know the answer. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as part of my background, I actually used to be a lecturer many years ago, and we lecturers always used to discuss between ourselves if we have a rough time in the lecture room in terms of people asking us questions. And we generally classify people who ask questions into three categories. Firstly, there's the genuine. There's the person who doesn't know the answer, who therefore puts his hand up and says, excuse me, can you tell me how'd you get to that figure or whatever else it might be. That's, that's genuine, that's fine. We love those type of people because if we haven't explained it right, we want to make certain that they do know it. Next though, cricketing fans will love the next one, there are the bowlers. 
Now, the bowlers are the people who actually want to see if they can catch you out. And what they do is they ask a question to show them, everybody else, how clever they are. And so, therefore, there you are at the front of the room, and you can see the person ask the question, and here comes that little round spherical object coming down the middle at you, and your job as a lecturer is just to kind of bat it away without causing them much damage. Notice I said much. Um, and then the final one. The final one are the U-boat captains. Now, the U-boat captains are lethal because they are the people who ask a question, they know the answer already, they're trying to trip you up, and you can see the torpedo coming down the aisle at you and the little bubbles appearing out behind you. And you know that what they're trying to do is to sink you. The lawyer was a U-boat captain. Slightly ahead of his time, of course, but never mind. Was a U-boat captain. He was asking something to which he already knew the answer, to try and catch out Jesus, to see if he could get him to say something that was incorrect. Now, the question is at the very core of what any Jew should understand. And so, instead of answering him, although I will say, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus does answer it. Remember I said this is in all three, this first question. Jesus does answer it. But here, in Luke, it's different. He doesn't answer it. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? which is a very clever way. I mean, you know, if anybody's going to send a torpedo at you, the first thing you do is turn it around and send it back. Long live Jason Statham. So the lawyer is now looking unbelievably stupid. You know, it's the type of thing that the... And remember, there's loads of people around who are all watching because this lawyer has got status. And they're all watching the lawyer, and suddenly he's got egg on his face. So therefore, he replies with all that... The only thing that he could do. He says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it doesn't matter whether you go Mark, Luke, Matthew, the answer is all about total devotion to God. So, the second part. Well, we get to the second part because the lawyer, to try and salvage the situation, asks another question, and it's a much better question. He tries to make himself look a lot better by going, and who is my neighbor? It's at this point that we get to the part of the parable. Now, we love parables. The people in the street that Jesus talked to loved parables. Why? Because human beings love narratives. Narratives tend to have a start, a middle, and an end. And we like that because we can put that all together. And so when Jesus has a narrative, a parable, it's a great teaching aid. But the great thing here is that, of course, he's trapped the lawyer into being part of the explanation of the parable. And so it's going to have even more power because everybody was waiting for the lawyer to trip him up now the lawyer is going to have to admit certain things, which is what Jesus wants to get over. So, we get to the parable itself. I will just go over it again, just to remind ourselves. So, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on by the other side. So, too, a Levite when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came near where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So, let's start out with the journey. Well, the background in terms, what we've got here, hold on a second, I've been chatting away so jolly nicely that I have the man, right, the road to Jericho. There we are, I've caught up. The man was going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there it is. Um, that's a little bit of it. You can see it's not very hospitable. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles. In that point, uh, 17 miles, it drops 3,000 feet in height. It's a very dangerous road in those days. It was known as the road of blood uh, or various other uh, connotations of the road of blood. Um, the road winds down the mountain, it's narrow, it's rocky, you can't move at pace, and of course there are lots of hiding spots for criminals on the way. Martin Luther King loved this story. He used it several times, and in fact on the day before his death, in his very famous speech, I've been to the mountaintop, he described his visit to the road in that speech. He said, as soon as we got on the road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as a setting for the parable. It's a winding, meandering road, and in the days of Jesus, it became known as the bloody pass. There is a slight irony here, because it's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This story is about a man who gets, and it's beaten up terribly violent. I don't know if you remember Palm Sunday, but when Jesus enters Jerusalem, they throw palms in front of him. Jerusalem is too high to produce palms, but Jericho is not. So these great offerings of peace actually would have come back up that road from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So just a kind of a little irony in there. So what we get to is we get to the robbers. Now, the robbers were very common on this road. No idea how many. We don't have any background to them. We just know they were robbers. They beat the man, they stripped him of his clothes, and they left him half dead. And presumably, he would have died if someone hadn't come along to help him. Then we get the first person, the priest. Now, the priest was a Jew. He knew the law, and he developed it in others. The priest would, of course, have been purified. He would have gone through a process to enable him to be able to administer to people. And if he touched anything that was unclean, it would have blown his purification, and therefore he would have needed to have gone through the purification process again. There was an exemption if somebody was in desperate need. Uh, I don't know whether he even thought about the exemption. All we know is that the priest took one look at him, and he kind of crossed to the other side of the path, and he kept going. Then, you get the Levite. Now, the Levite was a member of the temple functionary, pretty high up, from the religious tribe of Levi, exactly the same problem as the priest. He would have become unclean if he touched the man. Again, the exemption might have applied to him, 
but he didn't even worry about that. He just kept going. Now, it's a sign of the Christology of, of Martin Luther King that he actually defends the priest and the Levite by actually saying or putting the question that it's a possibility they were worried about the fact the robbers might have been hiding and the man might have been a decoy. But to be honest with you, the way that road is, they would have got the priest and the Levite, even without the man being there, if they were hanging about. There were so many hiding places, so I'm afraid I, you know, thank you very much, Martin Luther King, and it's very kind of you, but I'm not sure I ascribe to that. But the one thing that I do wonder about is I do wonder whether I would have stopped. Oh, of course, we all sit here nicely tonight, don't we? Go, yes, of course I'd have stopped. But I actually wonder, given the fact of I'm walking down the road, it's hot, there's a guy beaten up on the path, there, it's obviously dangerous, you know that there are robbers about, would, would I have stopped? I'd like to think I would have done, but I do ask, would I? In Andy Andrews' book, How Do You Kill 11 Million People?, which is about the Holocaust, he tells the story of a small German church which was right next door to the railway. At various times during a service, trucks would go past which were full of Jewish people being taken to the concentration camps, and their cries were awful. The people in the church simply sang more loudly. After the war, they actually really realized how much they regretted what they'd done. But the problem was, at the time, it's all very well for us here and nice and comfortable to go, that's awful! But with all the soldiers about, with the way everything was, do we raise our head above the parapet? Okay, that's history, that's history. Let's go to something more modern. Here's a picture from 2004. This was on the BBC website. It was under the title of, Would You Help an Injured Person? This is an actual real thing in 2004, in October 2004 in uh, North London. Uh, this woman was, sorry, it was southeast London, not North London. Um, this woman was hit by a car. She's lying on the ground. She has got, um, well, serious head injuries. This picture is taken from a bus that did pull up and stop and the driver got out. It's got CCTV on the bus. But in fact, the CCTV records at least 12 cars that pulled round her and kept going. The question that the BBC put on their website is, for people to answer, would you have helped this woman? And what was interesting was the replies split probably reasonably 50-50 into people who were horrified by the fact that anybody would do anything other than stop to the people who were putting down, well, no, I wouldn't get involved. You don't know what's happening. And in fact, nowadays in our society, it's very much highly pressurized of do not get involved. So uh, the Levite and the priests, they were ones who walked by, but they're not the only ones who've walked by. We then get to the Samaritan. I just jumped to... No, no, that's the next one. Okay. So, no, okay. The Samaritan was despised by the Jews. There's no two ways about that. The Jews thought the Samaritans were neither Jewish nor Gentile. Uh, the 
Samaritans came from the old northern kingdom. The Jews had already destroyed the Samaritans' temple on Mount Gerizim, and the Samaritans, in turn, had brought um, human bones into the temple at Passover, which desecrated the temple. So the two factions were just constantly hating each other. And in fact, if you remember, that the lawyer, when he was asked which one of these was the neighbor, he didn't reply, the Samaritan. He replied, the one who had mercy on him. And one of the thoughts of scholars is that he just couldn't bring himself to say, the Samaritan. It was just, he just hated the Samaritan so much. So, what have we got in terms of the Samaritan? Well, the first thing is, he actually stopped. Okay, we know that. He approached a half-dying, naked man, and he might have thought there was a decoy for robbers, but he didn't worry about that. He kept going. He then used his own resources, his expensive oils, and he used cloth to bind up the man's wounds. He even gave him some of his own clothes. And then he put him onto a donkey, and he carried him to the nearest inn, for safety. Presumably, he had to walk by his side, hold him on to stop him from falling off. He then stayed overnight to look after the guy. He paid the innkeeper two silver coins, which probably would have lasted for about two months, and he said he'd come back and pay any extra. So the question is, what is the point of this parable? Well, of course, we all know that. It's, who is my neighbor? Of course it is. But there isn't. There's actually a subplot going on in here. And the subplot is all about attitudes in life. In the parable, there are actually three groupings that are in here. The first grouping are people who we'll call the grabbers. The second grouping are the selfish. And the third grouping are the graceful. Let's look at those in a little bit more detail. The grabbers, who we're going to say are the robbers in this story, is what's yours can be mine if I just come and take it. I mean, just look at Watchdog, for those of you who think it doesn't exist nowadays. The people out there who will do anything just to take it away from you. But of course, it doesn't relate to us. I mean, that's, we can be grateful it doesn't relate to us, of course. I mean, we wouldn't be doing insider trading if somebody gave us a really good tip on the stock market. We'd obviously investigate first to make certain it wasn't illegal or insider trading uh, before we used it. Um, we would never exploit our strength or somebody's weakness to get better advantage. We would never drive what was an unfair bargain simply because we could. Possibly. But where it might, and I'm going to be very controversial here, which could suggest I get thrown out in the next few minutes. God is unbelievably good to us. God just pours grace on us. Unending. If someone takes that grace without giving anything back, I think that's grabbers. And there are times, I admit, when I'm a grabber, when I take that grace and I don't give back at that point in time. Now, I know 
that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing I can do to make God love me less. I know that God will continue to pour grace on me, whatever. But I do actually think that God quite likes the idea of us giving something back. Let me give you a simple human-style example. Some of you will have children, some of you will have grandchildren, some of you just might have cousins or whatever. And I don't know about you, but when my children were small, um, I would give them pocket money. Well, actually, it was a loan. I'm still waiting to be repaid, but never mind. But I would give them pocket money. And I would give it to them without, and, you know, here it is, it's yours, whatever. If my child went to the shop and bought themselves some sweets, but bought two packets and came back and gave me one of the packets, I would be delighted. It would be so brilliant. And I think God just is a bit like that. He doesn't expect anything back, but what joy if, in fact, we do give it back, that we show we are not grabbers. I'm not saying we're grabbers the whole time, but we can be. Next, the selfish. What's mine is mine, and I'll hold on to it securely. Oh, that priest and the Levite, of course, yes. These are people who can see no further than their own situation. But, what about the person who comes to church, does all the things that are expected, but in their heart of hearts is actually a protectionist of their own position. Oh, yeah, I can do that as well. I'm, I'm guilty of all of these. In fact, the third one I'm probably less guilty of than the first two. But, you know, where there are times when, yes, we can be extremely selfish about things. I'll I give you a simple example. You know, isn't it strange how big a 20-pound note is in church and how small it is in the supermarket? Uh, I mean, it really is. I, you look at it and you think, whoa, look at me, I was, uh, whatever. And you go in the supermarket, you go, how much? Oh, okay. There's another story. A man goes up to heaven and he's greeted by St. Peter. And St. Peter says, come on, let me show you around. And he goes in and he takes him past and there are beautiful houses and there are mansions and there are lovely little cottages by water and green grass. And he goes round the side and there's a few tents made out of bits of plastic and old bits of timber. And St. Peter says, that, that one's yours. He said, hang on. He said, what about the big houses around the corner? What about the mansions, etc.? What? And St. Peter looks at him and goes, I did the best with what you sent. You know, so it is, it is about that. You know, let's, let's not be selfish on the way through. Then we get to the graceful. Oh, do I want to be in this the whole time? What's mine is to be used for the common good. I mean, the Samaritan is here leading the way. I mean, he used what he needed to for the benefit of his neighbor. His attitude was that the person or the cause was more important than his asset. Now, notice, he didn't set up a trust. He didn't set up to give all his money away. He did what he could when he could. But there is one other person who we haven't mentioned in here. And he doesn't fall into the three categories at the moment. I'm not going to put him in one of the three. It's the innkeeper. Now, often the innkeeper is just, you know, we just go over the top of him because we've looked at the other three. But in terms of the innkeeper, I mean, he would have been a Jew. He's in a Jewish area. He disliked both trouble and Samaritans. 
and both turn up on his door. Uh, he agrees to take in the injured man. Although he gets money up front, he agrees to take him in, and he will nurse the man. Now, remember, he's been given money for two months, and if it's longer, I will come back and pay you. And so he goes above and beyond to help out this man. And, of course, he trusts a Samaritan to come back. And this is where Jesus actually leaves this subplot hanging. It's something which we very rarely look at. But at the end of it, the innkeeper is probably closer to us than the other three. He's just trying to make his way through life with all the pressures and prejudices of this life, and he's trying to be a good person. He maybe hasn't quite found the same amount yet as the Samaritan, but he's on the road to being graceful. Well, what lessons do we get out of this? God likes Christians with attitude. Look at the story of the widow's mite. She had attitude. The Samaritan, he had attitude. Jesus himself, boy, did he have attitude. Mother Teresa, she had attitude. Eric Little, he had attitude. Oh, chariots of fire, just in case anybody's going, Eric Little, Google it. And, of course, traffic lights. What? Traffic lights. Yes, indeed. Traffic lights. Traffic lights, of course, have three colors. Red, what's yours can be mine if I just come and take it, the grabber's color. Amber, not quite so bad. What's mine is mine, and I'll hold on to it securely, the selfish. And green, the, gra <coughs> excuse me, the graceful. What's mine is mine to be used for the common good. And really, I only bring in traffic lights because I quite like little reminders. So next time you're out in the street, I know we don't have any around here, but next time you're out in the street, you see a set of traffic lights, just think to yourself, grabbers, selfish, graceful, because that's the attitude that Jesus wants to think about here. And as it says at the end of Jesus' parable, in Luke 10, verse 37, now go and do likewise. Amen.